James Ryan is the president of the University of Virginia. Before James Ryan came to the University of Virginia, Thomas Jefferson's institution, he was the dean of Harvard's Graduate School of Education. James Ryan is the one who wrote the book about Richmond, Five Miles and a World Apart, about the disparity in our city, especially in education. James Ryan has also written recently another good book, a helpful book for all of us, whether we like UVA or Virginia Tech or UNC or Duke or anyone else. This book is entitled, Wait, What? It's a book about life's essential questions and how we get the most out of life. Ryan argues that it's not the answers that matter. It's the questions that we ask that matter. And he says there are really five essential questions that you should ask yourself and that you should always be asking others on a daily basis. And the first question is, wait, what? And you can get the book and discover the four other questions on your own. (laughs) I recommend the book. It's short. It's easy to read. It's helpful. It's encouraging. It's insightful. In the introduction of the book, uh, Ryan tells a story on himself. He was 11 years old, and he was playing in his backyard with one of his best boyhood friends. And the two boys had a magnifying glass and a leaf. You know, they're doing the experiment, trying to light the leaf with the magnification of the sun's rays on the leaf. Well, this experiment was not working too well, so they decided, and I quote, to douse some leaves in gasoline. (laughs) Turns out that worked really well, so well, in fact, that a fairly large blaze erupted in my backyard. He says, my friend and I eventually managed to put the fire out, but not before it singed both of my eyebrows. Ryan continues the story later that night when my parents asked if I had any idea why there was a large black patch of burnt grass in our backyard. I pretended to be as surprised as he was. (laughs) That's odd, my father said. When Ryan asked his dad why he thought it was odd, he replied, because I'm pretty sure you started the day with two eyebrows. Parents are so much smarter than we think they are as kids. Gracefully, Ryan's father didn't take the conversation any further than that. However, as a good Catholic boy, Ryan first confessed this burned-up backyard to a priest. And he says, I think it may have been my very first confession with a priest. He said that, Talking about a big fire in his backyard was a pretty big sin to talk about right out of the gate with the priest. Ryan says it was really two sins, lighting the fire and then, as politicians say, misremembering that he had done so when asked by his parents. So Ryan says he asked the priest, what happens if you don't confess all your sins? And the priest told him, well... That, too, would be a sin, a sin of omission. 
The sin of omission is, according to the priest, failing to do something you ought to do. The priest said, this is just as bad, just as much sin as intentionally doing something wrong. Sin of omission. So, for a quick review of theology and terms, sin is officially missing the mark of what God intends for our lives. That could be anything, big, small, anything that deviates from what God would have us do. When we confess our sins, God, who is loving and just and faithful, forgives us. That's the promise of the gospel. And we go through this ritual every Sunday. When we confess our sins, God promises to forgive us. And life with God is a constant turning from what we would have done and should have done and what we have failed to do as God's people and living in a new life that God gives us through grace. That's the Christian life. There are basically two kinds of sins, sins of commission, when we do things that disappoint God, and sins of omission, when we fail to do what God would have us do. So we pray, usually, in some form or another, forgive us, God, for what we have done. And Lord, forgive us for, you know, what we've left undone. We do this regularly, confess, pray, not to feel berated, not to feel belittled, not to beat ourselves up, not to wallow in our failings. We do this for a fuller, more honest, richer life with God filled with grace and possibility. We're always seeking in the Christian life to move away from our failings to a more generous, loving, purposeful life with and for God. Now I want to invite you to listen to our second lesson today. It comes from the prophet Isaiah. You're even invited to read along with me. You can find it on page 548 in the Bible. I want you to pay special attention here to what might be considered omission, sin of omission, what the people had not done. So Isaiah 1.1, the very first verse. The vision of Isaiah, some of Amos, which he saw concerning Jerusalem, Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah kings of Judah. Jumping down to verse 10. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Listen to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord? I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who asks this from your hand? Trample my courts no more. Bring, bringing offerings is futile. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and calling of convocation, I cannot endure solemn assemblies with inequity. Your new moons and your appointed festivals my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. 
I am weary of bearing them. When you stretch out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves and make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your doings from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Rescue the oppressed. Defend the orphan. Plead for the widow. Come now. Let us argue it out, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be like snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be devoured by the sword, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. This is the word of the Lord. So in Isaiah 1-1, right there, we get the who and the what and the when. We're always looking for that. The who, the what, and the when. Isaiah, perhaps the most prominent prophet in all of Scripture, comes on the scene with an important mission from God. This will be a vision. That's what it says, meaning it's going to be a message. It's going to be uh, not from the person, Isaiah, but from God. And it comes to a particular person, Isaiah. That's the who. Isaiah will speak God's words. Isaiah will speak God's messages. I will, Isaiah will convey directly to God's people, quote, concerning Judah and Jerusalem. That's the what. And all of this takes place in the days of four specific kings, real time, real history, from 745 B.C. to 727 B.C. So that's the who and the what and the when. Then, as biblical scholar Walter Brueggemann puts it, Isaiah the prophet reminds us in the very first chapter, and he does it, in fact, in every chapter, that life and history... That events and circumstances never operate in a vacuum. Life and history, events and circumstances always relate to God. Everything relates to God. That's the message. Everything relates to God and God's purposes and God's plans. God is the one to be reckoned with. God and God's ways matter. This is always the case for Isaiah, for the people in his time, and for God's people all the time. God matters. God is present. God cares. God is involved. Here's how I want to summarize what Isaiah says in this passage. It's all about the sins of omission. Okay? What are the people actually doing? They are bringing sacrifices to God by the multitudes. They are burning rams and other well-fed beasts trying to delight God. They are celebrating with cultic festivals. They are performing rituals, worship, prayers, stretching out their hands, it says, probably even singing. What does God say? I've had enough of this. I cannot endure you and your festivals anymore. I can't endure your prayers, your rituals any longer. Trample my courts no more, God says. Incense is an abomination to me, God says. Your appointed festivals my soul hates, God says. I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. 
what does, why does God say this? What's this about? Why is God so disgusted with God's people? It's because of what they're not doing. Sins of omission. The people, according to what follows in this text, are not practicing justice. The people, according to what follows in this text, are not living with kindness. They're not tending to the oppressed. They're not pleading for the widow. They're not caring for the orphan. The things that God really cares about are being ignored, avoided, minimized. The people are so caught up in their festivals and their activities, in worship and their prayers, in singing and lifting their arms. And God is angry. Put another way, Isaiah, like Jesus, like others, Isaiah reminds the people that we find blessedness with God not in cultic prayers, not in rituals, not in showy activities, not in offerings, not in incense. We delight God when we remove the evil of our doings. We delight God when we learn to do good. We delight God when we seek justice and rescue the oppressed and defend the orphan and plead for the widow. And all these things are not being done. And they should be done. Sins of omission. Now, do you think this prophet's words apply to God's people today? I saw a quote this week. We had 13 people hospitalized from E. coli caused by romaine lettuce. And every piece of romaine lettuce was pulled from the shelves. We've had 38,000 people killed in a year by gun violence. We do nothing. Sin of omission. Or go to the store and try to buy two boxes of Sudafed. The clerk will say, by law, you can only buy one box of Sudafed. So maybe say, okay, I'll take one box of Sudafed and seven assault weapons because it's legal. Sins of omission. We've had people killed in public places, schools, concerts, restaurants, sanctuaries, downtown streets, so many places. And we see no changes. Our culture is divided. We keep focused on guns. Rabbi, I mean, Rachel Held Evans, not a rabbi, Rachel Held Evans has been a dynamic voice for faithful Christianity. She died recently from complications from the flu. She said that Americans have pledged fidelity to the unholy trinity of patriarchy, white supremacy, and religious nationalism. She said we must repent of the ways these unholy allegiances have led us to worship guns and the supposed ideal for which they stand. She says white Christians especially must repent of the ways we have stood by silently, silently abetting the suffering of our siblings of color under this Unholy trinity, sin of omission. Here's another comment. 
news stories about mass shootings always follow the same template. Initial confusion about what happened, on-site interviews with those who escaped, a press conference then by police chief and maybe the mayor, calls for greater gun control by some politicians, calls for thoughts and prayers by other politicians, a tweet by the president, then we move on. And nothing changes except people buying more guns. Sin of omission. This week with the mass shootings on our hearts and minds and the turmoil of our culture, it's pretty easy for me to connect what Isaiah says with our very lives. Isaiah warns us to watch what we worship. Watch out what you worship. Watch out, watch out what you do with your life and to always be asking. Isaiah is basically saying, always ask, always assess. What matters most to God? What does God call us to be about? What does it mean to be God's people? God cares about how we live. Blessedness with God is not mostly found in our rituals. Blessedness with God is found in our acts of justice. Blessedness with God is found in how we love the stranger and care for the widow and support the orphan and assist the weak. That's what Isaiah says. And I would add, blessedness with God is found in actions, actions that help rid our culture of assault weapons. Please. All of this is really not about the Second Amendment it's about the second commandment. The second commandment says you shall not make for yourselves an idol. You shall not bow down and worship idols. We're the only culture in the world so addicted to our guns, even assault weapons. Do you think Isaiah would have a word of God for us? You can see that the word for the day, the sermon title is urgency. We have some harsh words from Jesus really, rooted in urgency. Don't be afraid, little flock, for I'm going to give you the kingdom. That's what it says. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be. He urges us to be dressed, to be ready, to be attentive, to be active, to be on watch, to be expectant. Where's your treasure? Is there any urgency? Any urgency? In talking about this passage in Luke, uh, commentator Fred Craddock uses the word crisis. Crisis doesn't mean emergency, though it feels like we're close to an emergency. Crisis means the moment, the moment that we have to make tough choices. Truth is calling for tough choices about life. And this is what Jesus is urging us in this passage. We have to decide what we're going to do like a gable on a house that determines where the water falls, this way or that way, like a fork in the road, this way or that way. You've probably heard that the Chinese character for crisis means two things. It means danger and it means opportunity. And this is the essence of Jesus' message. Which way are you going to go? This is the essence of Isaiah's message. Which way are you going to go? There's an urgency about our choices. Will it be for life and faithfulness or will it be despair and death? Will it be for blessedness or for continued frustration and disappointment and even death? Here's the deal. God has turned toward us. That's the gospel. 
Which way will we turn? God promises never to leave us. How are we going to live? These days are calling for faithfulness, for actions, for advocacy, for calls to our representatives, for efforts to make this place, this safer city, this society more wholesome, more hopeful, the safer, more wholesome, hopeful world. These things matter. God matters. God and God's purposes are always woven into our lives, or at least they're meant to be. God's presence and purposes are always meant to be woven into our lives. How do we live? What are we going to do? We have much work to do. One of the greatest pieces of this passage from Isaiah, the prophet, this harsh call to choose, to act, to be mobilized, this dramatic call, one of the most favorite pieces is that it ends in grace. It ends in hope. Isaiah says, Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be like snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. If you're willing to be obedient, if you shall, then you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse, and if you rebel, you shall be, be devoured by the sword. For the word of the Lord has spoken. We always have a chance with God. We do. Even in the harsh and angry words that Isaiah is speaking here, there is this word of grace, this word of possibility. However, grace always demands faith, and grace always demands commitments toward the kingdom of God. We can't say we simply follow Jesus and sing and pray and worship and go on with our rituals. We cannot say we're part of God's purposes without speaking up and acting up, and doing God's work on the destructive issues of our time, like assault weapons, and racism, and anything else that is threatening us from what God intends for all of us. There's an urgency about faith. There's an urgency that calls forth our lives as God's people, our gifts, our actions for justice, for life, for hope, for possibility, for peace, for the kingdom of God, an urgency about this. Here's how one theologian put it recently, and I quote, Our expectation of the kingdom cannot be a passive waiting, a sweet, soft occupation with ourselves and our like-minded friends. No, if we truly expect God's kingdom, we will be filled with divine power. Then the social justice of the future, with its purity of heart and divine fellowship, will be realized now, wherever Jesus himself is present. Our belief in the future must bring change to the present. The spirit of expectation is the spirit of action because it's the spirit of faith. And faith is bravery. Faith is reality. If we have faith, even a small seed of faith, we cannot regard anything as impossible. May it be so. Amen. Let us pray. Holy God, show us the way. The way of Jesus. The way to life. Especially in these days 
especially. Amen.